I'm Carol Cohn, and welcome to Purpose 360, the podcast that unlocks the power of purpose to ignite business and societal impact. It is my honor and delight to host Paul Pullman, the world's dauntless leader for stakeholder capitalism and candidly, my hero. Because of the work that I have done in purpose for over three decades, I have always followed the extraordinary journey of Paul as CEO of Unilever and most recently co-founder of the B Corp Imagine. And of course, he does so many other things, including the B Team. Today, he is with us to celebrate the launch of his book, Net Positive, How Courageous Companies Thrive by Giving More Than They Take, co-authored with sustainability leader, Andrew Winston. A key part of creating and then accelerating the journey to highly positive business and societal outcomes in a net positive company is linking individual purpose, brand purpose, and company purpose. Here's a few comments from the book. If the organization is ready and has the necessary elements in place, then identifying company and personal purpose and finding the links between them creates a virtuous circle. It is how you unlock the company's potential. Whether magical or practical, the connections between personal, brand, and company purpose creates a stronger, more successful business that's more resilient, a business that's prepared for the tough work ahead. What should net positive companies do to find purpose and unlock higher performance? They should go back to the roots to understand the original purpose of the company and its reason for being, and to leverage the company's DNA to serve stakeholders better. They should look forward to understand the world's needs and where the company's purpose can best serve the world. They should get their house in order and invest in people, brands, and innovation to speed the pursuit of net positive. They should send the right signals and set policies that drive net positive thinking and behaviors. They should help top executives become authentic leaders and be consistent in word and deed to live the company's purpose. And finally, they should enable all employees to find their own personal purpose and connect it to the company's purpose. In my conversation with Paul Pullman, he talks eloquently and candidly about the Unilever journey, which is the core of net positive. He also surprisingly said to me that it took 10 years of hard, hard work to embed the Unilever Sustainable Living Plan into the company and then to get extraordinary results. Since I founded Carol Cohn on Purpose in 2015, I have ardently followed Unilever and Paul's inspirational work. In the dozens of speeches that I give around the globe to business leaders, purpose teams, and students, every single one, every single one has Unilever and its amazing actions and achievements within them. 
Now that Purpose 360 has reached over 100 podcasts, we are pivoting from the why purpose matters to how to embed it in an organization. Today, as we dive into net positive, our conversation, as Paul so eloquently shares in the book, is about the how an organization can achieve its purpose in the most powerful way to benefit all stakeholders from employees to supply chain, communities, customers, investors, and the planet. It's a must read for anyone who wants to know the fabric of the Unilever story and the humanistic and extraordinary leader that shaped its destiny. It also includes key principles, strategies, tactics, partners, and intangible elements of culture, purpose, and inspiration. Its dedication foretells the wisdom within. And it says, in service of the billions of people worldwide who are still left behind, who deserve courageous leaders who will stand with them in building a better world. So join me in this amazing conversation. It's one of the foremost highlights of my career. Welcome, Paul. Thank you, Carol. An honor to be on the show. On LinkedIn, you say the best advice you were given is that you either make dust or you eat it. You've been making dust throughout your career by mobilizing businesses to better serve humanity. So why? What is your purpose that drives this work? Oh, thanks, Carol. I've always believed that it's important to do the harder rights than the easier wrongs and and that you really should... um that you should fight for some of the basic values that make humanity function, values like dignity and respect, uh, equity, compassion. And anytime these values get, get violated or attacked, you really have to speak up because you're talking about the future of humanity. So for me, ultimately, it's about the basic uh, human values and, and sustainable development for all, if you want to. Uh, and, and that's why I'm so passionate about this. I had the opportunity to uh, be part of the uh, high-level panel, as it was called, to develop the Sustainable Development Goals. Uh, we decided in Rio Plus 20 in 2012 to find a sequel to the Millennial Development Goals and to finish the job to irreversibly eradicate poverty and do that in a more sustainable and equitable way. And the then Secretary General of the UN, Ban Ki-moon, asked me, to represent the business. And as we were preparing for this and, and looking at the scorecard of the world, we obviously saw that it wasn't a pretty picture, but also on the other side of it, an enormous opportunity. And more and more, I felt that uh, business should integrate these goals and be part of that solution. Uh, the most burning ones being obviously climate change and inequality right now. Why a book now? To be honest, there's never a good time. We should actually have uh, not had to write this book in the first place. That would have been better for us. But we're finding ourselves at a crucial junction for humanity. If you look at this year, World Overshoot Day, which was the day that we use up more resources than the world planners, was July 29th, which really frankly means, Carol, that after that date, we're actually stealing from future generations. We've lost 60 
68% of our our uh, mammals and reptiles over the last uh, uh, four decades. We've cut half of the world's rainforest. The issues of climate change are incredibly, increasingly transparent. And the system, frankly, where uh, we leave too many people behind. I've often said that uh, any system where too many people feel that they don't participate fully or are left behind will ultimately rebel against itself. And we are at this crucial juncture where we really have to decide if we're going to live together in harmony and and in sync with planet Earth, or if we become one of these statistics of this of extinguished species. And, you know, I know which side of the history I want to be on. And uh, unfortunately, we've waited long. We've waited way too long for this. Uh, people are now broadly convinced of what needs to be done in terms of the direction. But what is missing is the speed and scale. And this is what the book is trying to address. And many people struggle with that. In essence, I believe uh, in the goodness of, of human beings, of CEOs, etc. But But it's the how that needs to be answered now, not anymore the what. So let's start with at a high level. What does it mean to be a net positive company? We we describe it as actually a company that gives more uh, than it takes. Uh, at the end of the day, as I said, many people are still in the linear consumption pattern of uh, digging into the ground, of uh, uh, stuffing it into a factory, using it, and then putting it on landfills or increasingly in the oceans. Only 90, uh, 91% of Anything we produce can only used once. So that's not uh, very encouraging. So it's not good enough anymore to be CSR or corporate social responsibility, which is basically dealing with the less bad. We really have to move to responsible social corporations and make that shift. It means actually moving first and foremost to having no negative impacts, which, which many people call net zero. But as we are passing these planetary boundaries, we actually need to think about restorative, reparative, um, regenerative, and this is what we call net positive, how you can actually show that you have a positive impact in this world by being around. If if you can't really show that, why should the citizens of this world keep you around in the first place? There you go. And you spend a tremendous amount of your time about leadership. Can you talk about the traits of a net positive leader? You cannot get a systems transformation or a business change transformation if you want to, if you don't have the leadership transformation. So that's why what we put in this book is first and foremost that it starts with yourself to become this courageous, purpose-driven leader before you can actually drive the broader changes in your company and the broader system. In fact, I should have mentioned that in the net positive book uh, that we have some characteristics that need to be first understood before we get to the leadership. But it is really a business that improves the well-being of everyone uh, and in all of its impacts, in, in its products, in its operations, in its regions and countries for all stakeholders. We talk about a very tall order that really, frankly, no business really has achieved yet. Ownership of all your impacts and consequences, which is where it starts with. We call it in the book that if you break it, you own it. Own it, right. Companies 
um, take responsibility for what's under their control. But when it gets to the value chain, they think they can outsource the value chain and also outsource responsibilities that doesn't work anymore. We talk about operating to the long-term benefit of business and society by ensuring that you maximize the returns or optimize the returns for all stakeholders. That shareholder returns is a result of what you do, not a myopic ob objective. And then finally, that you're part of the uh, forging these broader system changes. Now, and that takes courage. It takes courage to set targets that you know that are needed, but that you don't know quite how to achieve. It takes courage to play uh, how to win versus not to lose. It takes courage to work in partnership where you expose yourself, where you have to listen to other ideas, where you might not have the the power that you're used to as being a CEO. Uh, it, it takes courage really to go out of your comfort zone. So we like the word courage because it comes from the French word cur, which is heart. And uh, we need to bring humanity back to business. We cannot just distill it into spreadsheets and and simple numbers, uh, as, as Milton Friedman was trying to do. And uh, what we have seen, especially during COVID, is that the leaders that showed a high level of empathy, humanity, humility, that were leaders that were purpose-driven, understood the power of partnership, were systemic thinkers and looked at the world a little bit more holistically, uh, thought about things multi-generational. These are actually the businesses and not surprisingly the companies and leaders that are doing better during this crisis. So these are the type of leaders that we need to foster. And, and the reality is we're short of leaders. The average tenure of CEO is now less than four and a half years for these companies. The average lifetime of a company itself is 17 years. It was 67 when I was born. The number of publicly traded companies are going down. You know, ultimately, Carol, and, and this might be a little bit provocative, but this is not a crisis of biodiversity loss or climate change or food security or inequality. This is a crisis of uh, apathy, of greed, of selfishness that uh, that needs to be addressed. And, and it starts first and foremost, therefore, with your own journey and, and your own leadership. So I'm glad you said that because I want to talk about how you really created the culture and the direction to follow you for the USLP, Unilever Sustainable Living Plan, was to start with the personal purpose of your leadership team. What does that mean? And how do you do that with a senior leadership team and then cascade it down into the organization? Yeah, I think first and foremost, it's never been a better uh, moment. You know, we're seeing a tremendous change happening at a scale that we've never seen before. You know, the the scale of the industrial revolution, the speed of the technological revolution, uh, the the, uh, the 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 amount of change brings with it a certain level of anxiety. I understand. But for the people that understand it, it brings with it also an enormous level of uh, opportunities. So it's really that we talk it in the spirit of uh, opportunities at a time that, frankly, the expectations of business has changed enormously. And as we've talked before, uh, you cannot be a sustainable company if you're not sustainable yourself. You cannot be a purposeful driven company if the people in the company themselves do don't have that stronger feeling of purpose. So what we did with Unilever to make it very practical 
I inherited a company in 2008 that frankly wasn't in good shape. It had gone down for 10 years, had saw its turnover drop from 55 to a billion to 38 billion. It had become a little bit of a victim of its own doing and, and was chasing its tail and increasingly becoming short term to make financial targets, uh, cutting the legs of training or investments or, or, uh, capital spent, uh, acquisitions. All these things, frankly, were absent over the, the 10 years. Regretfully, even with that strategy, the share price had not moved whilst the market globally had gone up. So we were in desperate need for change. And this was the height of the financial crisis. And it was very clear to me already during the financial crisis that this system of high levels of government or, or public debt of overconsumption of leaving too many people behind really was coming to an end. Regretfully, we didn't address it then at the macro level with the governments of this world, uh, but I felt that business was such an important part of these global economies that it was impossible to achieve these objectives if business would not step up to the plate and fill that void. So that requires really a personal awareness. And I think the first um the first requirement is is not only your own self-awareness, but about awareness, what is going on in, in this world. Purpose uh, is defined by Colin Meyer as to profitably address the issues of people and planet. But you first need to understand these issues of people and planet. So it really starts with taking responsibility of your total impact. It starts with uh, listening very carefully to all of your stakeholders, your communities, your suppliers, your trusted peers, the, the people you serve, and, and all of these things. So that is what we did in Unilever. And I had the fortune to know Bill George, and I knew him already from the time that he was the CEO of Medtronix. He had taken me to one of his factories where, frankly, they were making pacemakers. And I came in with a mindset of, let's, let's look at quality control and how they do this. And this is a good, obviously, product to look at quality control. You can't have any defects because people's lives are at stake. So, but what he had done when I came in is every month they would invite someone in who had a pacemaker and they were actually sharing the story, how it changed their lives. And humanized it. And yeah. humanized it and, and make that purpose really the core of, of your operation. So what I did was I went back to the origins of Lord Lever, who was quite a remarkable man uh, at the end of the 19th century when he created this company. It was Victorian Britain, where one out of two babies didn't make it either past year one, where the, uh, the issues of hygiene were enormous. And he had a simple objective to make hygiene commonplace. He actually added to that to lighten the housewife's loads. <laughs> there we go. Okay. Business, yeah, which, uh, which I think would be even relevant today. And we, um, he put a business uh, philosophy behind that that he called shared prosperity. He built the housing for the workers before the factory was fully running. He introduced pensions, guaranteed their wages during World War One, and, and all the other things. So he was quite a remarkable man. But he worked for the multiple stakeholders and never created his company for his own wealth, which he frankly didn't have, and uh, or, or for the shareholders for that matter. So he assumed that responsibility in, in that time period for that total impact. So we went back to that 
And we said, instead of making hygiene commonplace, why don't we lift that purpose up and make sustainable living commonplace? And that was really the origins of the Unilever Sustainable Living Plan. Now, you cannot have a good relationship with your partners in the value chain or in the in society at large if you don't have employees that feel good about the company they work for. I always say you have to pass the dinner table test. When I'm at a, at a dinner at someone's house and, oh, you're such a big plastic produ- uh, polluter, you're irresponsible in the way you do human rights, or, uh, you know, you're more of a problem for today's world than, frankly, a solution, you don't feel comfortable, or if you can't defend yourself and explain it, you can never be an engaged or motivated employee. So we spent the first year with Bill George finding our own purpose, practicing how to work with others in enlightening their purposes and ultimately how to translate that into business results. And that was a quite a, a transformative experience. 70,000 people have gone through it. Some have reoriented their careers. Others have left the company. But the end result is that we collectively created that purpose. I want to talk about other hows, which is why it's important to have transformative partnerships. I want you to talk specifically about partner to win, how you make suppliers partners, because I think that a lot of our listeners are going to go, what? The the most important thing here is that um, uh, the CEOs are being held to higher standards than they can deliver on themselves. Uh, If you are a CEO and you stay in your office and you only take responsibility of what people call scope one and two, what is under your own control, you can only influence so much. And yet people expect increasingly these companies to be responsible corporate citizens, to be part of solutions, to play a more active role in advocacy, if you want to, to transform markets so that we don't have these negative uh, externalities. But it's difficult for CEOs to do that. They might not have the knowledge the time they might not uh, there might be the competitive pressures if i do it and the others don't do it am i at a disadvantage or not many of these obstacles come in the way so no ceo can solve the issues of plastics in the ocean or no company alone can move the world to regenerative agriculture or stop deforestation so the safest first thing to do to make your business models more robust to lower your negative externalities if you want to to seize these many opportunities that we now have around the positives if is to work with the people in your value chain we've seen during covid very clearly that companies that had a better contract with their employees. It has been a tremendously pressured period. Uh, Lots of anxiety, uh, suicide, mental health issues have gone up. But companies that thrive were companies that had a better contract with their employees, better social uh, protection, if you want to, um, better training and development, um, better linking in with other people in their value chains that might not be at their payrolls, but are absolutely crucial for uh, for the functioning of their company. Uh, the truckers in the system, the suppliers of your raw materials that got disrupted, um, the, the people that uh, distribute your products, they are going the extra mile when they feel that same pride, when they have internalized that same strong sense of purpose. So the bigger things you need to do is first to get your value chain impact uh, under control. For Unilever, when we said we're responsible for the total impact in the world, uh, if we like it or not, but uh, we have to take that responsibility. It means, for example, on climate change, 
that we have to look at the climate change effects of our presence throughout the value chain. If the food production results in deforestation, we have an issue. If food production itself is carbon emitting, we have an issue. If consumers at home use our products with showering and boiling water that require a lot of carbon, we have an issue that we need to solve. So you have to take that responsibility. What we did with Partner to Win said was, since we carry the responsibility of the ultimate product that we sell to the uh, final uh, citizens of this world, and we have this contract of, of trust, of transparency, we need to be sure that all of the elements that go into producing these products live up to the highest standards, be it no child labor, be it no slave labor, uh, be it no corruption, be it not linked to um, uh, deforestation. Uh, be it ensuring that people have fair wages in their value chains. So we created standards. We looked at our top 100 suppliers. Pareto law applies there as well. Unilever had 90 to 120,000 suppliers when we started. But we took the top 1,000, which was about 75% of all what we were buying. And we put three levels in place. And we helped them with training in place and, and development. And we said to these suppliers, why don't you live up to the same commitments and standards that we set? You become stronger partners with us. If it is really something that society is looking for, our business will grow, which in fact happened over those 10 years. We went back to the low 50 billions in turnover and, and you will prosper as much as what we. Now, the, the effects of what we saw was um, most of the suppliers came in at level one and some went quicker to level two and then level three. But our relationships with suppliers became stronger. We found ways to work more efficiently with each other. We cut costs that were non-valued added. We could put it in things to strengthen where we needed to invest some things, let's say living wages or sustainable standards that might not immediately be lower cost. And bit by bit, we converted this value chain. And most of these suppliers um, were actually seeing the lift up in their own purpose amongst their employees as well. They felt part of something bigger than, um, than just a narrowly defined uh, shareholder value. And that was tremendously stimulating. The result of that for Unilever was that most of the major suppliers were, you know, would bring the innovations first to us instead of others. Um, that we saw companies like Seventh Generation or or um, Dermalogica or other wonderful uh, B Corps in the system, uh, Puka, that they said, we want to work with you guys um, because you aspire or you can scale what we aspire to uh, with the values that you live. So it actually resulted in, in better business uh, and, and faster growth in the end. So that's the Partner to Win program where we upgraded them to the standards of of social and environmental, so as much human rights and living standards as uh, sustainable sourcing, if you want to, as, as women empowerment. And that, uh, I think, has given us a very robust value chain that also proved itself during COVID. I think that's amazing. I have not heard you talk a lot about that in other podcasts, and I don't think people, unless they really study Unilever, get that. So I hope our listeners heard that really well, and begin to practice that. Of course, read the book. I want to ask the question about measurement because you very much created in the USLP time-bound commitments, and then you reported every single year with a, a light system, green, yellow, red. And so you were very transparent about what you achieved but what you didn't. So why is that so important to a net positive company? 
It is important for various perspectives. After you um, uh, set your purpose, we talked about, or bring the purpose to yourself and your people, you have to set net positive goals and clear targets. First of all, these goals have to be stretching. You have to set targets that might make you feel uncomfortable because you just don't have all the answers yet. But these are targets that you know are needed. For Unilever, these were targets of all our products sustainably sourced, zero uh, carbon emission in our value chain, 100% living wages, at least 50% women, uh, including uh, people with disabilities at its fair share, etc. These were targets that we thought over the 10-year period we should achieve. Why is it important? For two different reasons. The first one, Carol, is that by setting these targets, you assume responsibility and you can be held accountable. By making these targets public, in Unilever's case, three overarching targets, but 50 total targets. And yes, we have lots of debates of why so many targets, but you create trust. The, 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 the driver of trust is transparency. Transparency drives trust and trust drives prosperity. So we found that making this transparent, reporting on it every year, inviting all of our stakeholders to come with us on that journey, lifted up the level of trust that was bestowed on Unilever that got translated into becoming the employer of preference in all of the countries that we operated in employee engagement in these relationships we talked about. The second reason for this is that as we set these targets and they were so audacious, no company frankly had set them, that uh, we did something by coincidence that made us human. We said, we don't have all the answers, which is very rare to hear from a CEO, and we don't know how to get there alone. So we actually opened the door for partnership, for, for saying to people, we know that where we are is not good enough. Don't just attack us for that or advocate endpoints because we actually agree with you, but become part of this journey because it's awfully tough. The how to do this is where the most difficult thing is, not in the why we should be doing that. So setting these goals and these clear targets where well, we call it obviously um, uh, blow up your boundaries is what we talk about in our Great. Great, but, great. Uh, Love that. This is literally what you need to do. Uh, right now, we see a lot of companies setting targets and ticking the box and saying we do ESG. But frankly, they know in, in essence, these targets are not uh, sufficient. They've been already tested in the sense that they know they can deliver on them. Perhaps they've already done that. So they're playing it safe. It has a statement from the public relations department behind it. And that's really at this moment of where we are with humanity starts to become irresponsible behavior. And frankly, with the transparency that is out there now, I think these companies are increasingly being called out when there is a gap between the say and the do. You're talking about humility, having the humility to say, I do not know the way forward, but I'm inviting others in. And I know you invited a lot of NGOs in and that you could have some tension in terms of what they want and what you're trying to do. So why is it important to bring NGOs into the company to learn, to partner, to grow? Well, we've had plenty of tension and that is normal when you create more intersections you just need to be sure that where these intersections are that you turn that into positive energy and i think broadly we have achieved that but for example uh, the right ngos and i'm not advocating all the ngos just for the uh, for the sake of argument but the right ngos are often closely connected to the issues on the ground where everything happens they have a deeper understanding 
of the complexities of the issues, but more importantly, they are also crucial to the execution of what you want to do. For example, Unilever had uh, programs around hand washing to help a child reach the age of five, or healthy nutrition, or oral care. Half of or more of the absenteeism in schools is because of oral problems with, with bad uh, oral care. So all these projects on the ground uh, had to be brought to life, and many of those happened with NGOs, if you want to. When uh, our toilet cleaning brand, Domestos, made a commitment to build 100 million toilets and solve the issues of open defecation, which is still affecting one and a half billion people, we had to work with the Divids or which is the UK AIDS agency or, or uh, USAID or the Gates Foundation and others to make that come alive. When we started creating new tea plantations because of climate change, because of wanting to create livelihoods, because of of, uh, of supporting the, the need for our businesses, we had to work with governments to make it, uh, to do it in the right way and, and find the land and transform. But we had to work with thousands of smallholder farmers, in fact, hundreds of thousands of them for a tea plantation. So they need to be trained and educated and ecosystems put in place around them, including schooling and 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 other uh, health services and all these things. And uh, you need the voices of the NGOs. I remember that uh, soon after I became CEO, I was being asked to lead the task force of the B20 around food security, which is the business group of people that supports the G20, all of the big countries. And uh, uh, I found that in the past, it was only businesses. I said, I'm happy to sh share it, but I will only do that if I bring NGOs in. So we invited Oxford, uh, IFAD, OECD, and many of the other uh, organizations. And all of a sudden, the issues of biofuel came up, uh, the issues of women and land rights in Africa for women, uh, the issues of education or access to financing. And we came up with recommendations that were 10 times more robust bust that, um, that still uh, are as valid today as then. So you gain your credibility. I also think now that I'm out of the CEO job and my successor has taken over, he's continuing and even stepping up in that respect. Because once you have these alliances and, and not only then do you gain credibility from society. Uh, after all, you're not elected yourself, but working with the NGOs, etc., makes it uh, a little bit more palatable if you want to. But you create these partnerships that are so strong when they are aligned objectives and clear accountability and and agreements on 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 how you how you make it come alive. That it's very hard to undo them. So it guarantees, I think, also for the people that we serve. Ultimately, it guarantees that increasingly they get the right end of the stick instead of the wrong end of the stick. Really well stated. And and I know that Alan Jope, your new CEO at Unilever, he said that he could never change the direction you're going on. He would be voted off of the island dramatically because your employees believe in it so much. What does it feel like to be an employee in a net positive company? Well, what we saw in Unilever over these 10 years, which surprised myself a little bit as well, is we were sort of in the bottom of the middle 
group of 8,000 companies in engagement. And when we started this journey, obviously it took us about five years before we saw meaningful results. And I would say 10 years before we really had embedded this. So I want to just trust the importance of sticking to the journey. You can't boil the ocean at once. And the most important thing is in, in, in to getting to your question is really the cultural change. Culture is, is really a, a function of the values that you put out there, but more importantly, the behavior. It's the value and behavior that decide the culture. So many companies, the Boeings, the Enrons, the GEs, the Parmalas, the Wells Fargos, and I could go on, they probably had wonderful value statements that made you cry. But to make it come alive is where they fell short. And then it creates a rotten culture. Even today in the US, if you ask people and just using US statistics, 75, 80% of the company CEOs say that they are living their values or their purpose. But if you ask employees, they only say 15 to 20%. And this gap needs to be bridged. This is one of the reasons why less than 20% of employees globally feel engaged at work. So think about this enormous loss of of opportunity. So what does engagement feel like in a company itself when you get there? It's an environment where each and everybody can develop to their fullest potential, where each and everybody is respected to that fullest, irrespective of race or gender or culture, where, where decision-making is delegated down to the levels of where the decisions are, not where the hierarchy centers its powers. Um, where people are aligned around a common goal. People said often to me in Unilever, how come that anywhere I go, any of your countries, we were in 190 countries, people say the same thing, are as passionate about the Unilever Sustainable Living Plan, and feel nearly like missionaries in terms of changing the world. And, um, and I said, it's because that purpose is so strong and so aligned. And what we felt was actually what surprised me was it became more of a performance culture because people understood very well that the guns were still out, that the cynics and skeptics were still there, more so than now, but, but there's still plenty of them out there, the vested order and others. So if we don't prove that this alternative model of longer, longer term multi-stakeholder with purpose at the core brings also value to our shareholders, we're actually going to do more damage than good. And that pressure was us. Can you just mention the um, what your return on equity was for your 10 years at Unilever versus the FTSE? First of all, on top and bottom line, we grew every year and we outgrew our competitive set over 10 years. We mm-hmm. had a 300% shareholder return over that period, which was well ahead of the market by a factor of three. And we operated, despite 64 acquisitions I talked about, at a 19% return on invested capital. My mother was still alive then, and I always said I would have had a hard time even explaining to my mother if we were, <laughs> you know. So by all means, our shareholders were also satisfied. And that was very important. I I want to perhaps jump here into one comment. You do have to have business results and you do need to take your shareholders along. And increasingly, you should be able to translate your sustainable strategy, your your focus on, on your purpose into a value creation story. I think companies are becoming better at it, but very few CEOs are still skilled at it. But ultimately, you need to uh, produce those results. There is no question about it. So certainly the street is now catching up, whether it's the Business Roundtable, Larry Fink, or others. There's all Just Capital, who we adore. I love Martin Whitaker. He's been on the show many times. And so 
How has the conversation shifted in terms of the Wall Street and the financial markets beginning to embrace whatever we call it? It's called ESG for the moment. And the conversations are changing. So again, we're talking about the how here. So for the C-suite listeners, what should they be saying to the financial markets so that this is adding value to their share price as well as their stakeholder relationships? So uh, first of all, uh, great respect for Martin. And, and Martin just published a study with uh, Just Capital where they looked at the Russell 1000 and they looked at companies that were operating under this ESG, long-term sustainable, that we keep talking about. And they found over the last four years alone, a 30% higher return than their uh, peer group. And I think the main argument, you might say uh, there is the moral argument, but unfortunately, we don't have the luxury of time to just wait for the moral argument to prevail. But I think increasingly, the reason that you see the financial market move, and may I say in many areas ahead of the rest of the business community, is really the the increasing evidence of the financial attractiveness of this different business model. And I just re- refer to COVID here for a second. Uh, the governments in Europe and the US have spent about $17 trillion just to save lives and livelihoods. And we're not out of the woods at all. Um, uh, the IMF, uh, Kristalina, estimates that at a GDP level, we've lost about $28 trillion globally as a result of COVID. The cost of this has been enormous. And by the way, this is not the first time that we see these zoonotic diseases as a result of destruction of biodiversity. We've had Zika, SARS, Ebola, Asian flu. This is a particularly nasty one, but the next one is awaiting around the corner. We've discovered that we can't have healthy people on an unhealthy planet. But we've also discovered that the cost of not acting now is significantly higher than the cost of acting. And here is where the interest is coming in from the financial market. I don't want to give them too much credit, and I don't think they're moving into this from a philanthropical point of view. But increasingly, we see the ESG funds going up. They're estimated to be about 50 trillion in value in about three to four years' time. We see the green bond market going up. We see more and more financial institutions making commitments to decarbonize their portfolios in line with the Paris Agreement on climate change, which is to stay below one and a half degrees and and decarbonize it to net zero by 2050. So there is uh, increasingly we see alliances being formed, uh, started obviously with the principles of responsible investment, which has now over $100 trillion signed up to that. But then the task force of climate-related uh, risk, the TCFD under Mark Carney and Mike Bloomberg, uh, the Net Zero Alliance that is now forming for Glasgow, enormous groundswell of activity. Some of that needs to be more transparent. Some of that needs to be more standardized. Some of that needs to obviously be, uh, be uh, foolproofed and genuine. Uh, but these are all just uh, positive signs, in my opinion, of a market that is uh, rapidly changing. And what um, the financial market is clearly seeing increasingly so, and why Larry Fink 
uh, writes his letters around purpose, etc. First of all, it's in his interest to have more publicly traded companies and have these companies be around longer. Uh, he needs to take care of the pensions of many of the people. They don't only want their return so that they can retire, but they also want to have a wealth they can retire in. And that is obviously a great revelation of these big um, financial uh, managers. Um, but other, the other thing is he clearly sees the the financial benefit started to started with risk you know get myself out of risk so i demand that you disclose how many women you have on the payroll i want to see what your carbon exposure is i want to see what your human rights record is in the value chain risk mitigation but this is now rapidly shifting especially since COVID, to identifying the opportunities where the companies that are doing extremely well where billions of new market cap are created are in companies that position themselves to the future that are in green energy take uh, tesla take orsted and compare that with the market caps of uh, of uh, some of the big car companies that have denied this move or the exxon mobile Biles of this world. So the move is very much happening and the financial market is is starting to actually accelerate it, I would say. And I wanted you to talk about that because I because, you know, I've always been at people patting me on that. Oh, you're such a do gooder. You know, you want business to do good. But this is business does well. And I think that that shift is totally happening. And I am so excited that, you know, to stay in my career and to just look up to you, learn from you, read net positive, which, again, all my listeners should buy because it's absolutely a great, great guidebook. What are you most proud of that you did at Unilever? Well, it wasn't about myself. It is really an honor to lead a company like this. And that is obviously a certain level of pride that, um, that, that was given to me, but it's an incredible responsibility. And what I'm proud of is, is perhaps that we are showing that you can have this multi-stakeholder business model, that business can be done differently. We got into an ugly fight uh, with Kraft Heinz, uh, where it was a battle between a few billionaires and a company that believes the true definition of a billionaire is serving the billions of people. We had two conflicting business models, one driven by value creation and the other one believing that the only right way to create value is through having values in the first place. So we pointed out perhaps this difference that is there in the economy and that um, if we want to really um, uh, be around uh, for longer, uh, be in sync with planet Earth, then uh, directions that we were taking with Unilever should be the ones that that uh, that increasingly uh, are needed. So what I'm proud of is that we perhaps catalyzed at a little bit higher level than ourselves some of these changes that we, we uh, were part of these debates that we showed that business could be more responsible. But, but you know, ultimately for me, it's the results. And, and what I care about is, is the people we touch uh, you know, I was obviously very touched by the many people that we were able to uh, improve their lives on in our own value chains. But the reality is uh, the job is not finished. And, and actually, COVID has pushed us back another 150 million people in extreme poverty, still four and a half billion people living on less than $5 a day, 240 million children not in education, 800 million people still going to bed hungry, not even knowing if they wake up the next day. So so I don't stop to be honest because, and it's not the success of Unilever that counts here because I've said many times if Unilever does this, 
but nobody else follows, we're still in trouble. And we are at this precarious time now that we really all have to wake up collectively and, and start to make the moves. Uh, on climate change, we're seeing commitments from countries, but they are commitments for 2050. When we know we need to halve the emissions between now and 2030, we only have about 20% of the companies making commitments. There are still the majority of companies not even wanting to publish what they do on human rights or slave labor in their value chain. Anytime you put yourself in that position, I think you erode your equity, but you're also making a statement that you feel it's acceptable. And I always ask a simple question, would you like your own children to be in that situation? So there's something about the golden rule, do unto others as, and the planet in this case, as you'd like to have done unto yourself, that I think is the first beacon that we want to uh, put in front of of our leaders to see if they can pass the moral test, but but increasingly I think we need to uh, the moral test of humanity. But increasingly we need to step up before we can be really proud of anything. If I may be honest, so that's really the answer. You know, you talk about the USLP as an enterprise purpose, but why is it important to have brands? Building off of that and any insights about brand managers who truly want to embed purpose, real purpose into their brands. Well, ultimately, um, you need to be sure that as a company, you have a um, minimal standards that you consistently apply across the company. That consistency is very important in terms of getting your credibility or being seen as genuine. That's why we started to reintroduce the Unilever brand also. I, I felt that people are more curious to know who the companies are behind these brands and the companies they deal with. And frankly, we saw that if the corporate brand was higher, loyalty to our brands in these countries was higher as well. So we made these absolute statements on human rights with the Ruggie framework, for example. And John regretfully just passed on last week, but he was an incredible human being driving uh, human rights standards and what is now known as the Ruggie framework. But um, uh, uh, on, on sustainable sourcing, on uh, livable wages, on gender equality. These are things you can pick and choose. You have to do across the organization. But then increasingly, your contract, at least for consumer-facing companies like Unilever, your interactions with the citizens of this world is through your brands. Citizens increasingly want to associate themselves with brands that stand for what they believe in. We've moved past the price alone. We've moved past the functional benefits, as, as you well know, with Edelman, and you've seen that and helped create that with a brand like Dove, for example, that very much thrives by standing for women's self-esteem. And what we found was brands that have internalized in their brand key uh, purpose and, and make that come alive stronger than others are brands that have a real connection because people want to be part of a movement. It's interesting. You might say individually, I cannot make a difference. People feel a little bit disempowered at an individual level when these problems are so um, overwhelming. But, you know, collectively, you have millions of people, hundreds of millions using Duff, hundreds of millions buying our tea. So the small act of buying sustainable tea, of fighting for the right labor standards on the tea plantations, of, of um, standing for women equality, wish your purchases next to other things that consumers do, like voting and all the other things, but with your purchases, is a tremendously powerful tool. Boycotts have not really worked, but boycotts are incredibly effective. So 
um, the brands are that contract with consumers to make these purposes come alive. And because they have that reach and the spending that comes behind it, we've seen actually that advertising the right way, portraying women in advertising the right way, um, addressing social issues uh, head on, uh, like we've done with some of our brands, um, attacking uh, the broader societal issues like Ben and Jerry's is the ultimate example of that. Um, your brands are actually uh, prospering. We've never been disappointed. We created a brand on, during um, the COP21 in Paris with uh, ice cream, which we called uh, Save Our Swirled. And that was one, uh, you know, that was one of the best sellers that we had. So anytime we put activism in a positive sense behind these brands, always grounded in these basic human values, we've never been disappointed. And again, numbers, they grew, your purpose brands at Unilever grew, what, 69% faster than your other brands, and they, they provided 75% of the total turnover? Yeah, at least twice as grow, uh, fast in growth and uh, and significantly more profitable is is uh, definitely the case, and that's not surprising. They are better connected to society, better understand the needs out there, uh, you know, and and probably people running it that uh, are a little bit more responsible. So add all of that up, it has to translate into better results. That's superb. So we have only a few more minutes, but I want to ask you if you meet and you meet lots of CEOs are beginning to read, they're beginning to pivot. What are the three most important things you would say to them to really get them on the journey in an authentic way? Well, it is, uh, it, that's an easy one in a sense, because the first thing I would tell these CEOs is this is an enormous economic opportunity. Don't miss it. The train has left. Uh, the station, if you want to, and you're either on it or you're already on the way to the uh, graveyard of dinosaurs. So that's the most important thing. The second thing I would say to the CEOs, it starts with your personal journey. The visit rots from the head. If the CEO is not fully behind it, if you don't believe in it, then frankly, step down from your job because it's too much of a responsibility given to you. Viktor Frankl said as well in his book, uh, Search for Meaning, uh, when they built the Statue of Liberty on the East Coast of the United States, they forgot to build the Statue of Responsibility. Respons I love that. I love that comment. Yes. Absolutely key thing. So that is the, the second thing, that it is your own uh, transformation. And then uh, thirdly is the incredible power of partnerships. You don't have to take all the problems of the world on your own shoulders, but forge these broader partnerships to drive these more um, disruptive changes that the world needs, right? now. Help de-risk your own processes by doing so and help de-risk a very difficult and gridlocked political process as well. So it's about um, opportunity. It's about your own leadership and it's about transformative partnerships. Fantastic. You say in the book, there is no net positive company yet. Why do you feel that? Well, I think many companies are on the way to uh, be in that direction. And I'm, you know, there might be an exception here or there, but I'm frankly not aware of it. Many companies still uh, uh, struggle with that. And, and most companies, when push comes to shove and they have to make a tough choice, they will still satisfy the shareholder and go for the longer term. So it is a very difficult transition. And part of the reasons that no company really can get to that yet is it requires broader systems changes. As long as the financial market increasingly pushes to the shorter term, 
as long as we have governments that still have prefer subsidies on fossil fuel uh, or or actually in the food chain where there's another four or five hundred billion that pushes you in the wrong direction. It's very difficult for businesses to do that all. That's why it's important that we get these broader partnerships. That's why it's important why businesses step up and become part of the solution to these broader problems. But it is very difficult. You can go a long way, and we've seen wonderful companies uh, making great commitments, increasingly also around um, restorative, regenerative agriculture, for example, or or uh, uh, social uh, safety uh, commitments in terms of training or development or minimum wages and all the other things. But inherently, we can only get there if we really drive these broader system changes together. And in closing... How would you like to to talk about net positive? Um, We've got lots of, again, different listeners from C-suite all the way down to students. So what would you like to just share as a parting comment with them since this has been a wonderful conversation? Perhaps two messages, uh, Carol, if I may. The first one is that the people that probably listen to this are very fortunate, like I've been. Um, I didn't, I had food, so I wasn't stunted. I had a toilet at home. I didn't have to do it was open defecation. I had a piece of bar soap, so I didn't die before the age of five, like 4 million children in the world. I was fortunate enough to be born in the Netherlands where I got free education. My father worked in a factory. We had six children at home. I frankly wouldn't have had a chance. But you know, at the end of the day and the older I get, I realize that I won the lottery ticket of life. I didn't do anything for that. And there's only about 5% of the people, mainly skewed towards your listeners, that won the lottery ticket of life, that are independent, that are sort of financially, um, you know, safe, that can do what they want. So if you won the lottery ticket of life, I would say it's your duty, it's your obligation to put yourself to the service of others. We cannot live in an increasingly on smaller and smaller islands of prosperity when we literally have a growing ocean of poverty. The second message I have is that um, it's uh, uh, is one of hope. People often ask, are you optimistic or pessimistic? And my best answer is I'm a prisoner of hope. We always underestimate technology and how fast that goes. We can solve 90% of the problems for the next decade already now. After all, we also know how to build houses or toilets or how to produce a piece of bar soap. So many of these issues, we have the solutions. So technology always is underestimated. The second thing is the cost of action and inaction I talked about. This is really an enormous opportunity. And the third one, there's an enormous groundswell of young people. They they want to be part of this solution to create this better, more inclusive wealth. They want to be invited at the table. And my point is, you know, increasingly give them the table. So moment is now to join the net positive movement. It is a it is a challenge to do. That's why we need these courageous leaders. And hopefully the book helps you to some extent not only get that courage, but very practical, because that's how we are very practically, um, give you some ideas on how to implement that into your company. I think that's it's a wonderful conclusion to um an amazing conversation with Paul Pullman. Net positive is a movement. And your contribution to that movement is extraordinary. And I know that, um, you know, all of our listeners will be so thankful. And I want to thank you, Paul, for, for joining the show. Well, you're too kind. Likewise. No. Oh, my God. No, it's just so great. I mean, I know I gave the first purpose speech um, on the main stage at Cannes um, in 2009. 
Um, and I also spoke after the Dalai Lama in Calgary. Um, so this is amongst those amazing points in my career. So thank you so much. Good to end with what the Dalai Lama actually said. Is He said that uh, if you seek enlightenment just for yourself, to advance yourself, you miss purpose. But if you seek enlightenment to help others achieve their objectives, you are with purpose. And there's no better time right now than to live a life with purpose. Thank you so much, Paul. This has just been, again, so wonderful. I know our listeners, we're going to promote the, the heck out of it. Um, make sure that everyone knows. And again, net positive, at least know that I'll probably buy a hundred copies. So they're going to come, come from Carol Cohn on purpose to all of my, my, uh, my network. Thanks, Carol. Be safe. See you. Hopefully. Net positive closes with this extraordinary comment. We're facing existential issues. Will things get worse or better? It's in our hands. The solutions to our decades-long global crises, climate change, biodiversity loss, inequality, the racial divide, and poverty, among others, lie in empathy and compassion, in systems thinking, and in collective action. We will choose our destiny together. We're asking for more trust, more courage, and more humanity. Do you care? Do you have the willpower? Can you find the moral leadership to do what we must? Paul and his co-author, Andrew, in Net Positive, show us the how to do this work, this amazingly hard but critically important work so that our lives and our planet will have a net positive future. Thank you for listening to this extraordinary conversation. Mm-hmm.